Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. The Scottish Revolution interview series. Rethinking the Scottish Revolution with Professor Laura Stewart. Welcome to the Pax Britannica Scottish Revolution interview series. In this episode, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Laura Stewart, Professor in Early Modern History and Head of Department at the University of York. Professor Stewart has published widely on the 17th century and especially the period of the British Civil Wars. In 2016, Professor Stewart published Rethinking the Scottish Revolution, Covenanted Scotland, 1637-53, and it's on the basis of this book that I spoke with her today. More recently, Professor Stewart has co-authored Union and Revolution, Scotland and Beyond, 1625 to 1745, and I highly recommend both books. More details can be found in the show notes and on the website, paxbritannica.info. Professor Laura Stewart, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. So, speaking of the historiography of, of your work, your monograph is titled Rethinking the Scottish Revolution. So that begs the question, what needed rethinking about the Scottish Revolution? Well, the first thing I want to say is that, like all historians, um, I stand on the shoulders of giants. And the first name that comes to mind when you think about the Scottish Revolution is that of David Stevenson. It was David Stevenson who coined that phrase. Um, and I believe his definitions still hold water. As far as David was concerned, the revolution entailed a major change in the character of government brought about by violence. And I think that sounds pretty incontrovertibly what happened um, in the late 1630s. The first point is that we know um, that the Covenanters seize power using military force. They raise an army and they rebuff King Charles I's attempts to quell what he sees as a rebellion using the military resources available to him as a king of England and Ireland, as well as Scotland. And I think in historical terms, just to, to sort of deviate slightly for a moment, that's an absolutely extraordinary moment. Um, the Scots do not have a good track record of going into battle with the English and prevailing. Um, and what's really important here um, is the kind of work that, that uh, Steve Murdoch has done um, on um, expatriate soldiers. 
um, who then return to Scotland and they provide the backbone of the Covenanting army. Um, so the Covenanters are, are able to face down Charles I twice in 1639 and 1640. Um, so from that point of view, um, you know, it's, it's, it's evident that violence was used um, in order to make a major change in the character of government. And that, again, is where David Stevenson's work was, was so important. Um, in essence, he shows that what the Covenanters do is they repatriate the powers vested in the King of Scots and put them into the hands of the three estates in a fantastic piece of constitutional sophistry. The Scottish Parliament argues that it has always been made up of three estates, the titled nobility, the barons and the burgesses. And they get away with this extraordinary fiction where they, <laughs> where they, they just remove the, the clerical estate, which has been there for hundreds of years to get rid of the bishops. Roger Mason calls this uh, baronial or aristocratic conciliarism. And I think that's a nice way of capturing what happens here. It creates a form of government that is genuinely more representative, at least of the landed elite, than the increasingly narrow court-focused regime that had been operating under James and Charles since 1603. Now, with my work, I went a little bit further, and, and um, what I wanted to, to, to really say was that it's the archipelagic war from 1644 that transforms the state. Um, but to all intents and purposes, you know, David Stevenson's um, definition stands up for me. He goes a little bit further, um, defining the revolution as political and constitutional, constitutional means that it's not a social revolution. It's not a revolution in which one social class seizes power from another social class. For me, it's the same sort of people who wield power in the 1640s that have always dominated Scottish society, and that is the landed nobility. Now, I would look to John Young's work, for example, and agree that there's more representation for the barons and the burgesses, but it's pretty clear to me who's running the show right through to 1651. Indeed, beyond 1651, it's, it's, it's the nobility who are leading resistance to the English occupation. Where I, I, I'm, I'm you know, better aligned, I think, with, with, with John is that you can contend that the nobility are having to collaborate much more actively with their social inferiors in the 1640s uh, in Parliament, um, in the Committee of Estates, which is the, the executive committee that, that essentially runs Scotland um, from the middle of the 1640s onwards. Um, and they're also having to do that in the localities where there's a stupendous effort uh, required to resource an archipelagic war by, by the middle of the decade. Now, what I'd like to stress here is that I'm not saying there aren't social tensions in Scotland. I'm not saying society hasn't changed in the past century or so, but my work wasn't about that kind of long-term social change. And it's entirely possible, I think, that the future research will want to put the social back into the Scottish revolution in ways that I felt I wasn't equipped to do. Um, in that sense, there was a, an interesting, um, uh, but, but now I think rather neglected book um, by the, the historian and former Edinburgh City archivist, Walter Makey, which was about this very issue. He talked about a silent revolution in which the fewing of church land from the 16th century um, changes the nature of, of land tenure. This is something that, that Alan McInnes picked up on in his book, um, the, the making of the covenanting movement. Julian Goodyear has done work on this, but it's 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 an area that I dabbled in and discovered. It was so difficult and complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was going to stick with simple definitions of political and constitutional revolution and leave the social for someone else. 
So I think that's that's where I, I sit in terms of the extraordinary work that's been done from the 1970s um, into the 21st century on this absolutely fascinating period in, in Scotland's history. But there were things I wanted to add to this interpretation and I wanted to flesh it out a bit in ways that I thought had perhaps not come through so much in the groundbreaking work uh, that I've just mentioned. And it was here that I turned to the work of the American sociologist Charles Tilley and I wanted to think about his definitions of revolution. He talks about something called a revolutionary outcome. How do we get from a position whereby a revolution might happen to a revolution actually happening? And he argues that a revolutionary outcome occurs when the victors in a struggle for power are able to gain the support of significant portions of the population. And so I wanted to examine in the Scottish case that appeal to the people, which I think is crucial for understanding why the Covenanters succeed. For me, it's not only the raising of an army that matters, it's the way in which the Covenanters used people power in advance of that development in order to get to the point where they were strong enough um, to be able to face down Charles I. So for me, the threat of violence is present there in 1637 and 1638. And what's interesting is that the Covenanters are successfully able to keep it in check. And that makes what happens in Scotland different, obviously, from, from the narrative events unfolding in England. And when I was thinking about these issues, um, I found the English historian Peter Lake's concept of publics um, really informative and really good to think with. I want to stress here that I did not argue that a Habermasian public sphere came into existence um, in 1638. I liked his notion of publics as, um, as, as temporary and unstable. And I think that something like that happens in the later part of the 1630s because you have got Covenanters and the King's supporters making pitches to the people that present different visions of, of the constitution. Um, one that in simple terms, the Covenanters put forward, which is much more participatory, um, as opposed to uh, a royalist constitution where obviously the emphasis is on um, the King as the fount of law on royal authority. And at the same time, they're also presenting two different visions of the church and, and one, one Presbyterian, um, shorn of bishops, um, one obviously, again, much more emphasis on royal authority. And in order to do that, they're also having an argument about what the Reformation was. And so that's why I found the idea of publics really useful. When I came to do two things with our source material, what I, what I, I wanted to do was reread some of the sources that we're all very familiar with um, for this period to uncover the strategies and the rhetoric that was being deployed by the Covenantal leadership in the 1630s and early 1640s. And I also wanted to bring in some source material that we didn't know so well, especially the, the manuscript or scribal polemic that was circulating in the later part of the 1630s. Um, and I found that relationship between that material and what was happening on the streets was a really important way of thinking what it was that the Covenanters were trying to do. They make an appeal to the people, but when they find themselves transitioning into a position of power, they have to shut all that down. They have to show that they're a credible government. Um, and that's what the Covenanters are able to achieve by 1641. And they get the king to agree to it. Whereas we know things go very differently in England uh, and you end up with a breakdown into civil war. So there was a, a third thing that I, I also um, wanted to do with my work here, and that was reappraise the National Covenant itself. Um, and 
17th century historians are very familiar with the text of the Covenant. It is not a thrilling read, but at least it's not very long. Um, it's a text that's been studied to death. But I was interested in the fact that nobody had really looked at the reception of the Covenant and at the way it was used to mobilise people. I thought perhaps we'd focused a lot on the signing of the Covenant, uh, which is really interesting. Um, um, but I think we needed to, to take into account that many more people swore the covenant. They mostly did that in their parish churches. And to me, this must have been an extraordinary communal event. To my mind, it's that communal experience that explains the deep social roots put down by the national covenant, explains why it survived and thrived beyond the destruction of the regime that had created it. And it was a very exciting part of my, my research. Um, I really, really enjoyed working on, on that particular chapter on the National Covenant. I recognised the work of people like David Mullen and others um, who emphasised compulsion, emphasised the kind of pressure that people must have been under to sign the covenant, especially once we get into 1639, 1640. Um, but I was interested in that more participatory oh, experience, that communal experience where there's, there's, a, there's a quotation from a Kirk Session record that I can't remember, um, where it talks about the men and the women and the children in their parish church holding up their hands and swearing the covenant. And, and I, I wonder what that felt like. For some people, it must have been daunting. For others, it must have been absolutely exhilarating. These were people who were being asked for the first time in their lives um, to, to, to sign up to a particular vision of the Constitution and, and, and of course, um, a particular vision of the church. And I wanted to bring that out um, in, in my work. I think another thing that I, uh, I felt was really important was that Covenanted Scotland was given attention in relation to its neighbours and where it sits in relation to bigger questions about early modernity. Um, and inevitably, um, given my age, uh, I was influenced by the historiographical developments in the late 20th and early 21st century. That's when I first started thinking about Covenanters. And here, of course, I'm referring to the new British history and Scottish interactions with it. And again, that was very fruitful work for me. But what I didn't want to do was write a British history in the sense that I, I think John Morrill would put it. Um, I, I wasn't looking at the in intermingling of peoples or the formation of a British state. But I think in doing that, what I neglected was contact with Ireland. Miku um, Shufu, in an otherwise um, very generous review of my book, said there could be more Ireland. Um, and, and I agree with him there. Um, and I, I hope somebody, somebody else is able to do that work. What I did instead was focus more on the English and Dutch connections that enabled the Covenanters to secure support in both those countries. Uh, what I did can, can certainly be expanded upon, um, but I felt I felt the book was getting big enough and, and busy enough. Um, <laughs> and I, I think it's a really important area. Maybe when I'm not a head of department anymore, I'll be able to pick up on some of the things that I didn't quite do as well as I wanted to do um, in the book. Related to that, um, and I've mentioned this theme already, I wanted to look at the development of the Scottish state in this period. Um, I asserted that it is um, the accelerated development of the state um, in the 1640s that also makes this a revolutionary period. And I, and I was influenced by a very wide range of work here um, in Scotland itself, the work of Julian Goodyear, although I came to different conclusions. English scholars, notably Mike Braddock, also Ian Gentles. 
but scholars of small European states um, were also really helpful for the way that I was thinking about these issues. Jan Gleet um, was important to me, but also Charles Tilly, Tilly again, Chris Storrs, um, also based in Scotland, but, but works on um, uh, Savoy in particular. This narrative of Scottish state formation is very different from the British state formation thesis um, that, that emerged in the, in the 20th and 21st centuries. As I say, for me, the 1640s were a period of accelerated development in the Scottish state. And I didn't see that development being cut off by Cromwell um, when he invades in 1651. It's much more complicated than that. Cromwell arguably embeds a fiscal regime that was created by the Covenanters. Um, and that fiscal regime, for all its problems and fits and starts, um, will endure until almost the end of the century. So uh, these are the, the, the areas in which I, I, I felt my book was trying to say something. Um, if not new exactly, then maybe a little bit different um, from what had gone before. But as said, like any historian, you build up and out from the foundations laid by others. And without all those scholars, I couldn't have done my work if I hadn't had um, the late Jenny Wormold constantly asking me every time we went for a coffee or a glass of wine, so about these Covenanters, are they ever <laughs> interesting or? Um, then I don't think I would have ever finished the book. And it's, it remains a great sadness to me that although Jenny saw the early days of that book, um, she never got to read it in its entirety. And I'm convinced that had she read it, I would finally have been in a position to say, Jenny, that is why Covenanters are important. And she'd have got it. There's a lot to pick up on there. The first thing that comes to mind, the way you mentioned that the Covenanters made use of, of public opinion almost and, and appealed to the people and to publics. I was speaking to Dr. Louise Yeoman earlier in the series and she uses a term called regenerate authority and she highlights the case of a young girl, Margaret Mitchelson, who appears to be in direct contact with God. Dr. Yeoman basically argues that the, the Covenanters up until the Glasgow Assembly find a source of authority, which they are otherwise lacking because they are going against the king, they are going against all these other institutional forms of authority that they are traditionally going to have relied on, they don't have them. But once they have the Glasgow Assembly, they kind of almost embarrassingly shuffle these people aside. Do we see a similar trend with the popular aspect of the National Covenant? Once the Covenanters are in power, once they're successful, do they keep relying on the public legitimacy of the Covenant, or do they try and put this to one side? I, th I think the, the, the archipelagic scale um, of warfare in the 1640s and, um, means that they keep having to come back um, to what the National Covenant stands for, what does it mean? Mm. Um, and although I argue that the Covenanters for most of the 1640s are very successful in terms of maintaining unity, um, it, it doesn't mean there aren't any arguments, there aren't any divisions, but, but they're, they're far more successful at it um, than, say, the English parliamentarian regime. The Covenanting government is a legitimate government. It's been endorsed by the king. But I think that those forces that have been unleashed um, in the later part of the 1630s and 1640s are not easy to contain. It takes an extraordinary effort to do it. Part of the reason they're able to contain it is precisely because they're able to make the, they continue to make the argument that the archipelagic war is like the conflict of 39 and 40, a defensive war mm. in the sense that if the king wins in England, then we're going to be right back where we were in the middle of the 1630s and we don't want that. Nonetheless, it remains, it remains uh, troubling for many people's consciences that in 1643, 
um, the, the Scottish Parliament agrees a treaty called the Solemn League and Covenant with the English Parliament. And that means that they provide military support for the English Parliament in its war against Charles I. It's very hard to argue that that's not an aggressive war if you were marching an army across <laughs> the, the Scottish border and fighting the king. So I, I think there is more work to do on that, that tremendous effort to keep the covenanting movement together. Um, in my book, I talked more about the later part of the 1640s um, when the covenanting movement um, nearly falls apart. Um, and it was at that point um, where I saw um, petitioning um, and the use of print uh, once again coming to the fore. Um, they're, they're, they're better able to contain crowds. You don't see, you don't see the, the level of crowd activity in, in 1648 that you've seen 10 years earlier, but nonetheless, um, there are clear continuities with what's happened at the end of the 1630s. And, and what's quite interesting to me is, is that those arguments in 1648, which, which are around whether um, the Scots should support um, Charles I, oh, excuse me, um, that seems a much more compelling moment than the royalist rising of the mid 1640s, which I've I've always thought is curious in the way there's so little appeal to the people, um, and and that that campaign um, it very nearly topples Covenanter government, um, but in the end, um, the 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 army that's in England um, is, is sent back up over the border and is, and is able to to destroy those forces and, and um, I, I I think that again the the effort um, in the wake of that royalist rising um, to bring people back into the fold and to rearticulate what it is that the covenant stands for means that, um, that engaging people um, with the covenant um, is, a, is an ongoing dynamic process right through the 1640s. So while we're on the subject of the royalists, if the covenanters are revolutionary, would that make the royalists counter-revolutionary? Is that a useful term when we're talking about these kind of factions? Oh, that, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I think, I, th I think for royalists, I mean, calling them, could you call them counter-revolutionary? I think the the thing about Montrose's rising, Montrose was of course, um, you know, an erstwhile covenanter, mm -hmm. and his rising does speak to that fundamental tension within the national covenant. Um, the national covenant upholds the authority of the king, but what if the king doesn't uphold the true reformed faith and doesn't uphold the parliamentary constitution that's partly underpinned by the covenant? Um, so. When we're thinking about what the royalists are trying to achieve in the 1640s, counter-revolutionary is maybe not a bad um, uh, phrase because they want to restore the status quo ante. Um, Montrose is committed to toppling uh, the Covenanters in Scotland in order to create um, space for the, the king to um, overcome his parliamentarian enemies in England. And this is about restoring the king's authority, about, about going back to a point in the 1630s um, where Charles um, sees him, himself as in complete control of all of his kingdoms. So, yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. But ideologically, um, they, they're not, they've not got much to offer um, in the 1640s. You know, if, if, you're, if you're someone like... Um, 
um, Bishop Maxwell, and you're you're arguing for the restoration of the of the king's powers, and you're saying that the, that the king rules by divine right. Everyone's thinking, so it's going to be 1633 again, is it? <laughs> <laughs> not not a vote winner. No, no. <laughs> if if there, if there was a lot of voting going on in 1643, <laughs> uh, this is not what they would have gone for. <laughs> I'm glad you bring up Montrose because. Yes, like you mentioned, he was a covenanter and then he he splits off. And the debate about when he decides to do so is is outside the scope of this interview. But what's beyond debate is that the, the covenanting movement has problems with unity. You've touched on it already. I'm curious how much, it's just occurred to me now talking about Montrose, how much of the the difficulties keeping the, the movement together stem from the vagaries of the National Covenant, which was deliberately so, so that everyone could believe what they wanted to believe from it, and how much of it was down to less ideological issues like personalities. Argyle and Montrose were not good friends, no. to, put it, to put it lightly, um, and how much things like the, the economic or, or pragmatic reasons. So as I've said already, there, there, there is that that inherent tension um, in the covenant. What do you do if you say you uphold the authority of the king and then the king doesn't uphold um, the things that are fundamental to the covenant? Mm. Um, and uh, that tension um, is exacerbated by events elsewhere in the archipelago. Um, and I've, I've mentioned already the, the kinds of stresses that, that are placed on the covenanting movement by entering the war in England. They're already engaged um, uh, militarily in Ireland. Um, and that's putting huge strain, um, both on the resources of a relatively poor kingdom, mm -hmm. but also putting strain on, on, on individual consciences. Um, it, it's fairly clear, I think, that people who signed up for the covenant um, in 1638, 1639, are not so sure that this is what they'd signed up for by the time you get to 44, 45. And of course, you see that in reverse. And in, mm. in bringing the Scots into the English Civil War is the point where some people in England go, hang on a minute. You know, I, I, I said that I had some difficulties with the direction of travel um, when Charles I wasn't summoning Parliament. I didn't like the things that he was doing in the church. But I, I didn't sign up for a war in which we're starting to take in you know, the Scots of all people to try and solve <laughs> our problems. So, they, so, so yes, you know, those ideological tensions are very much there. In terms of personalities and, and power politics, um, then you've, you've hit on the, on the obvious one, which is the, the tension between Montrose and um, uh, the Marquis of Argyle. And Argyle is the colossal political figure um, of the 1640s. But of course, he comes late to the covenant. Mm. Um, and, 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 and for me, again, that, that, that shows the way in which Charles I struggles to win support in Scotland because he, he polarises people. He says it's either the Covenanters or it's it's me and my authority as I have have wielded it for, for the past 15 years. Um, and oh, by the way, in order to restore my authority, um, I'm going to invade with a predominantly English army. So you don't create the grounds in which you can, can effect compromise. And I think where, where the covenanting movement 
is interesting is that they do work very hard um, to, to create space for compromises. And that's why the people who are really effective on Charles I's behalf in some senses are not royalists like Montrose, because what they are doing, as I say, is, is they're trying to topple the government and restore a status quo ante that people have rejected by 1641. The effective people are the Hamilton brothers, Mm. And the Earl of Lanark and um, the, the, the future Duke of Hamilton, because they are willing to work within the frameworks set by the Covenant. Now, I'm not convinced that, well, I mean, who would be convinced that the, the Hamilton brothers um, are in any way loyal to the Covenant? Um, you know, they, they, are, they are working in Charles I's interests, but they're buying into the structures that have been created in the 1640s because they see that as the most effective way in which to assist the king. Um, and I, I find those tensions within the covenanting movement um, in some ways more interesting than, than um, the, 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 what royalists um, are, are trying to achieve. I think it's, it's interesting you bring up the predominantly English army that Charles marches north with, because the Bishops' Wars and the National Covenant, to a lesser extent than, say, Robert the Bruce and, and Bannockburn, they have taken on a certain presence in the Scottish national mythology. To what extent would you say that the the revolution was driven by nationalism, or, or even proto-nationalism, or patriotism, perhaps? I think the word patriot um, is an interesting one um, because it's 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 current terminology, mm. and patriot language is being used in both Scotland and in England, and in very general terms, in the Scottish sense, it's it's describing a constitution in which kings can be held to account by the law, um, in which parliaments have an important role to play um, as part of the legislative framework. Um, I think that's uh, more useful than trying to think in terms of proto-nationalism. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this is roving outside my, my expertise now, but I don't think anyone would say that there was nationalism um, mm -hmm. in 17th century Scotland. But there's certainly a sense of a political entity called Scotland um, that is different um, from its neighbours, has a different culture. Uh, Scotland shares a history with England, but the way that history gets written about um, is, is in itself a constructor um, of, of uh, national identity. Um, in the early modern period. Um, I, think it's, I think it's evident that, that the covenant does have an influence on the evolution of a, of a Scottish national identity. And again, this is, this is an area where I think more work could be done. There is this very powerful myth um, in succeeding centuries that the covenant embodies re resistance to religious persecution. It's about freedom of religious expression and it's about the Scot Scotland's putatively democratic culture um, being, being activated because the covenant is taken by the people. Mm -hmm. And of course this myth is in a way a reaction um, against the dominant myth of the Anglo-British state as it evolves after 1707. Um, you know, that the Anglo-British state is actually the oldest democracy in the world, the mother of parliaments and all that. Um, but also the English Revolution produces um, what look like suspiciously modern ideas of religious pluralism and, and toleration. And so the Scots are saying, yes, we renounced our sovereign status in 1707, but we have our own traditions here that are distinctive to us as an historic people. Um, so on one level, um, the continued interest in the National Covenant and what it represents long after, as I say, the actual covenanting regime has been destroyed, could be seen as a response to perceived cultural imperialism. But I suppose the, the thing that I need to add here is that both 
the Scottish and the Anglo-British myths are just that, they're myths. The covenant isn't about democracy as we would understand it now, although the fact that it's taken by the people undoubtedly gives it subversive potential, and that's really important to know. It's certainly not about freedom of religion. Um, if, if, if anyone knows anything about the covenant, it's that it's rapidly anti-Catholic, <laughs> and it probably wasn't very hot on any other world religion, even though it doesn't mention them by name. So we have to remember that the, co the covenant, the covenant doesn't have much to tell us about um, modern Scottish society, but that doesn't mean we should ignore it. And, and I think our job as historians is to understand why the idea of the covenant continues to have appeal at least to some Scots, many decades and centuries after it ceased to be the cornerstone of a particular kind of constitution. So let's let's drill into that a little bit deeper. So would you say that the revolution wasn't defeated by Cromwell or even at the Restoration, that the, the idea of the ideals perhaps of, of covenanting and, and the revolution continued? On the most obvious level, of course, the covenanting revolution fails. Um, the government is destroyed, Scotland is conquered and occupied by an English military regime. Although interestingly, the covenant is not outlawed in the 1650s. Mm. The General Assembly is shut down in 1653 because it's making such a nuisance of itself. But the Presbyterian Kirk at, at regional and local level is essentially left alone. Um, and you could argue that it's the restoration regime um, that is more committed to destroying um, the, the covenant. Um, it does outlaw the covenant, um, but I think fails to obliterate it from popular memory, albeit the landed elite distance themselves from it, at least publicly. I think the harder the restoration regime tries to unmake history or remake history, I should say, not unmake, um, by portraying the Covenanters as, as the originators of 20 years of upheaval, I think the more ten tenaciously some people hold on to it. Um, and this isn't just about um, the, the people who are prepared to kill and be killed for the Covenant. Um, I think that the Covenant continues to, to, to influence people um, right throughout the rest of the 17th century. At the same time, the constitutional model of the 1640s is not forgo forgotten. Um, the relative accountability and transparency of Parliament in the 1640s, I think, contrasts favor favourably with the increasing authoritarianism of the Restoration regime in Scotland. Um, and I think over time, um, you know, once the the, the immediate um, uh, memory of, of the Civil War period has started to recede, the 1640s model is, is attractive. It's attractive to the revolutionaries of 1689. At least some of them wanted to resurrect the Covenant. This is kiboshed, but of course the Presbyterian Kirk is restored and it remains in existence today. The constitution of the 1640s and the covenants continue to be referenced as the Scots start taking a, a, a long, hard look at their relationship with England towards the end of the 17th and into the early part of the 18th century. The legal union is failing by the 1690s and the more robust parliamentary regimes of the 1640s and especially that confederal type of union that had briefly flourished in that decade, again, looks appealing to those who were opposed to incorporating union, yet all too aware of Scotland's comparatively weak position as a small, poor country on the margins of Europe. So I think, coming back to this question of defeat, on the most basic level, it's defeated. But what happens in the 1640s has lasting resonance. 
the ideas that, it, that are generated in that period don't go away and, and become embedded, um, I think, in Scottish political culture. Um, and there is there is something a little bit ironic that um, it's it's the English occupation that has a little something to do with that because they don't outlaw the covenant. Um, I, I think it, 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 it sustains itself in, in ways that perhaps would not have been the case had they attempted to do that. But that's speculation. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show, historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Most of the leading figures on both sides, Covenant and Royalist in between, um, are men. It's, it's a patriarchal society. But what's certainly true is that women, both aristocratic and otherwise, are playing very important roles in the revolution. I wonder if you could expand a little bit on that. Yes, I, I think the, the role of women in these events is something that, that I felt really demanded more attention. And, and I'll tell you why I thought that. 
um, it's because I myself had not given them enough attention um, in the earlier part of my career. And um, this is a salutary lesson to any students who are, who are, who are listening. Um, I went along to give uh, a paper in London. I can't remember what conference it was. Um, and uh, it was a truly terrible experience. At least it, 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 it was at the time. Um, I'd given a, a paper on the, the 1637 prayer book riots. Um, and I was heavily and in hindsight justifiably criticised for not mentioning women. I focused on the responses of men and responses of institutions without considering that all of that was gendered. Mm. Um, and, and I went away and I licked my wounds and then I thought, right, this needs to be done. Um, and so I started with um, the key um, uh, text um, when anyone approaches the involvement of women in the 1637 riots, and that's Natalie Zeman Davis's article, Women on Top. And she'd used the example of Edinburgh's rioting women to make the case for the license that otherwise patriarchal early modern societies afford women under certain circumstances. Now, I need to stress here that I was by no means the first person to have noticed, um, apart from Nanwazine Davis, that women were involved, um, not only in the, the, the disturbances of 1637, but also in the Presbyterian circles from whence those protests had, had emanated. David Stevenson, especially David Mullen, had long since pointed to the prominence of women um, in Presbyterian circles. But I felt there was a lot more to say both about the significance of that female presence and about the explicit gendering of the attack on the covenants by their opponents. So I wanted to think about a society in which women did have authority within certain parameters, where they were collaborators with men, not acting alone, and where they accepted that leadership, at least in public, needed to be the responsibility of men. And going back to, to David Stevenson's work and, um, and David Mullen's work, it seemed to me that Presbyterian circles, with their emphasis on spiritual, if certainly not political and social equality, and the relative social openness that goes with that did create spaces in which women had voices and had agency. And I thought this implicitly offered a corrective to the idea that um, it's a very popular idea that there's something uniquely misogynist about Scottish Presbyterians. It turns out um, that within those circles, as I say, women do have pro prominence and, and, and do have status. I also wanted to say more about the gendering of political polemic. And I've, I've got a, an article that's coming out in the Huntington Library quarterly this this autumn. Oh my goodness, uh, I might need to finish it. <laughs> uh, which, is, which is looking at a, a, a manuscript where I can explore um, the gendering of, of political polemic in more detail and also linking it back to developments in the later part of the 16th century. Um, I, I won't say more about that, but um, what I wanted to discuss in terms of the book was the way in which royalists sought to condemn covenanters by highlighting the role of women. This is evidence that they're aiming to take down the social order, or at least their tactics are going to result, wittingly or unwittingly, in the collapse of the social order. And so I do wonder, and I'm speculating a little here now, whether the visibility and audibility of women in the 1640s, both in Scotland and in England, has longer term cultural and social consequences. It frightens people. Um, and in the, the wake of the, the conflicts of the, the, the middle of the century, women had to be put back in their boxes. Does that moment affect gender relations and political polemic later on in the century? 
Um, and again, this was a, a part of my research that I really enjoyed. It was hard for me as a woman not to be excited about the examples of, of um, Edinburgh women roving the streets with their, <laughs> their kitchen knives, kidnapping members of the legal elite and making them swear the covenant. Um, so just from that point of view, I, I think, as I say, the visibility and the audibility of women, the way in which um, the, the challenge to authority in the 1630s is both enabled by women uh, behaving in those ways and create spaces in which they become visible to us is, is one of the things that I think makes this, this period exciting. That is really interesting. Let's stay with the prayer book riot for a second, because one of the interesting points you make in the book is that the name is a bit misleading, because for a prayer book riot, it wasn't actually particularly riotous. And you say that the, the term riot says more about the concerns of the authorities rather than the intentions of the so-called rioters. They weren't really causing a lot of damage. They weren't causing a lot of violence. I mean, there was the one noble who had to draw his sword, but that's, you know, what's what's a bit of sword play in a, in a, in a yeah, bit of a social unrest? Yes, that's, that's a normal Edinburgh night. That's fine. You, you make a you make a very good point that compared to protests in England and elsewhere in in Europe, for a riot, it's not particularly riotous. Yes, and I I think that's that's interesting and and needed explored a little bit more. I mean, I, I, again, when I started looking at, at the sources we know so well mm. in a lot more detail, um, it was evident that um, there was there was no um, serious injury that we know of to individuals. Um, there, there was stone throwing at at um, St Giles, then a cathedral. Um, there's no doubt that the crowds were frightening. You know, if, if, mm. if you were a, a, a royalist politician, if you were the provost of Edinburgh, um, then you you had reason to feel very intimidated if you were in Edinburgh in 1637. Um, but the violence is contained. And, and one of the things that I wanted to argue was that actually um, the Privy Council ought to get more credit for their ability to recognise the messages that were being sent out by the Covenanters in the way that they organised the disturbances and in the prominence that were given to women, that the, the gendering of that those disturbances was a message um, to the Privy Council, um, that this was not intended to be disturbances that heralded a direct challenge to royal authority. And it's only when Charles refuses to compromise, when the, the, the what will become the covenantal leadership um, cannot get across to the king, this is serious, um, that they then have to up the ante um, and they have to develop more radical um, uh, tactics. Uh, so I think that that moment um, in 1637, is is meant to be one in which the Scottish political elite say the prayer book is enough. We have mm. we can't take more of this. Your Majesty, here are the grounds for compromise. Here are the grounds for negotiation. Um, and Charles doesn't take them. And that's why you end up in a situation, I argue, that Charles um, uh, has to concede his bishops. And he's forced into that. And had he made compromises earlier, I think there were a lot of people in Scotland who were deeply troubled by the idea of attacking the clerical estate. But as I say, Charles gives them nowhere to go. Um, there's, 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 there's no room for compromise. Um, and, and, and so 
people end up supporting this, this as I say, extraordinary fiction that um, the, the, the clerical estate is, I think it's described as a canker, canker <laughs> on the constitution. So, so yeah. the absence of violence is interesting in that regard, because of course, as, as, as soon as people start getting killed in the streets of Edinburgh, mm. um, you're, you're again removing the scope for compromise. That, that's when it becomes deeply, deeply polarised. You're saying that this was meant as the, the lack of violence and the the focus in later reports that it was mostly women was almost a, it was a warning shot. Yes. That's yes. fascinating. Were the Privy Council, were well, were parts of the Privy Council in cahoots almost with some of the disaffected? Were they, were they working out their interpersonal issues on the streets of Edinburgh? The Scottish, the Scottish Privy Council, it's, it's not populated by people who are in cahoots with the Covenanters mm -hmm. exactly, but the Privy Council is well enough informed um, about um, the, the people who've been causing them so much trouble over the past 20 years that it's it's clear that something is afoot mm -hmm. um, in, in the, the, the middle part of 1637. Um, it is it is it is uh, suggested that the Lord Treasurer, probably the most influential politician in Scotland at that time, um, John Stuart Earl of Traquair, um, is purposely out of town um, mm -hmm. when the, is he out of town or does he just not turn up? Um, but anyway, um, he distances himself from what happens on the 23rd of July, 1637, because he wants the bishops to cop it. Um, and um, he will come back and solve the problem and solving that problem will involve downgrading those very aggressive bishops that he sees as um, as problematic presences on on the Privy Council. So it's not quite cahoots as such, but yes, that there, there's there's a there's a power play going on um, on the Privy Council um, that makes this situation even more complicated, and and, and ultimately, I think, does um, advantage the Covenanters because it means that the King is getting conflicting information mm. about what's actually going on in Scotland. Uh, Traquair wants to solve the king's problems for him, but ultimately, the it's it's bigger than he can deal with. Traquair is a busy person, um, but he's he's busy advancing his own power. And <laughs> he, he plays he plays a, a a difficult game. You know, he, he he's got the position that he has um, by saying yes to Charles. What do you want, Charles? I will deliver it. But at the same time, he's manoeuvring back in Scotland in ways that make it difficult for the Privy Council to present a united front. Um, and I, I think the Privy Council, as I say, deserves a little bit more credit than it normally gets um, for how it acts in 1637, because had it behaved in a different way, the situation might have escalated out of control. Um, it, containing the crowds on the streets is not easy. Um, and the situation could have deteriorated, uh, and that doesn't happen, and the Privy Council does deserve some credit for that, but equally, they can't solve the problem, um, and part of that responsibility goes to Traquair, but of course, the other bit of the responsibility lies with the King, because he mm. doesn't give his Privy Council very much to work with. What has the Privy Council got to offer the Covenanter leadership, as they increasingly show that they are the people who are maintaining law an order on the streets of Edinburgh. We spoke a little bit before about the the social aspect of this and, and the fears that Covenanters were threatening the social order. Now, in England, especially later in the 1640s and into the 1650s, there's there are social revolutionaries, uh, the yeah. diggers, the levellers. 
were there similar groups in Scotland? Were there groups advocating for social change or, or economic reforms? It's, it's harder to see that um, in Scotland. It doesn't mean it, it's not there. I want mm -hmm. to return to what I said earlier. I'm not saying there aren't social tensions um, in, in Scotland in the 1640s. Um, one of the reasons that we can see the levellers and the diggers, well, particularly the levellers, is because they write yeah. and they publish. And, and I think Mike Braddock refers to the levellers as, 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 as textual communities, people who are connected through the medium of print. Um, and it's clear that the, the Covenanters um, are able to control the printing presses in Scotland um, in a way that the English Parliament is, is struggling to do down south. Um, so they are they are visible to us. Um, in England, in a way that's much, much harder to, to, to locate and, oh, sorry, I'm mangling my words there. Um, the, the social revolutionaries are much more um, uh, visible in, in England. I think if there, are, if there are people arguing for social and economic change, then what would that look like? What is it that they would want to achieve? Um, I, I think that we have structures of government in the 1640s that, as I said earlier, give um, more status and prominence to burgesses and members of the gentry. But we have to remember these are still propertied people. Um, the, 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 the people who perhaps come closest um, to wanting some form of, of social change um, would, would be the, the people who, who turn up at the Wigamore raid. Um, and Again, they, they don't write anything. Um, they, they don't have a manifesto as such. Um, and it's, it's, it's difficult to see them as social revolutionaries so much as people who are inspired by the covenant um, to want to remake society anew. Um, and those are religious imperatives um, rather than strictly social ones. I don't, I don't think that they're, they're talking about taking down the nobility. Um, they're not talking about fundamental reform of the constitution um, so that there's more representation um, for, for people lower down the social scale. Uh, I, think that, I think that their motivations are religious. Professor Laura Stewart, was there a Scottish revolution? I think I, I, I would want to argue that there is a Scottish revolution. Um, and I, I, I suspected you might. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, I, I want to reiterate that it's not me that came up with that idea. It was David Stevenson. And when David Stevenson talked about the Scottish revolution, he meant uh, a political and constitutional revolution in which there was a transformation in government affected by violence. What I partly wanted to do with the book was explore um, another dimension to that, which is the appeal to the people mm. that I think is absolutely crucial for explaining the success of the Covenanters um, up to 1641. But there's another revolutionary outcome that I wanted to stress in the book, and that was the way in which an archipelagic conflict on a scale unseen um, since the wars of the 1290s transformed the Scottish state. I saw it as a period in which state formation was accelerated um, and the um, Covenanters were able to mobilize the resources of a relatively poor society in, in ways that, that would, have, would have been almost unthinkable um, to, to James VI and I and even to Charles I. Um, and that legacy is an important one in, in fiscal terms, 
um, the, 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 the fiscal regime that's created in the 1640s influences the way that people try to raise money for the rest of the century. But I think what needs more investigation is the way in which the 1640s changed the way or might have changed the way that people thought about government and what government was for and what it should be doing and how people should participate in it. Um, and those are very exciting debates that, again, link what happened in the 1640s to those bigger questions um, about early modernity. So that's my Scottish revolution. Um, I would also say that um, there are people who are motivated by the capacity for the national covenant to generate uh, a, a, a reformation um, and they want to see um, society made anew they want a moral reformation um, and that dimension can't be forgotten in terms of understanding what motivated people um, to, to take the actions they did at the end of the 1630s professor laura stewart thank you so much for coming on the show today this has been absolutely amazing Thank you very much for your time. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes. Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.